This is the Biz News Podcast, one-on-one conversations with experts in business and personal development. We have two guests on this Biz News Podcast, co-authors of a remarkable new book that could transform how you and your staff go about selling services and products. They are Sacramento-based Roy Whitten and London-based Scott Roy. Let's set things up for our audience. If you guys wouldn't mind telling them a little bit about yourselves and your company. Uh, who would like to go first, Scott or Roy? I, I want to go first this time. Roy's been going first in most of the podcasts lately. So, <laughs> uh, My name is Scott Roy, and I'm one of the two partners that started Whitten & Roy Partnership. We're a sales consultancy that does um, work all around the world in helping organizations to transform their sales performance. And I'm a lifelong sales professional starting when I was 20 years old and selling books door to door in the United States. I was well-trained by a great company called the Southwestern Company and then uh, got into sales, sales management, built teams, you know, got to be a national sales manager of an insurance company and then uh, had the audacious idea of breaking away with two other partners and finding a bunch of money and then building a brand new insurance company from scratch, which we did. And it's now, you know, I'm not working with a company anymore, but I have some value still in it. Uh, But it's uh, now worth about 2 billion in assets. So that went pretty well. (laughs) So, and then, uh, and then I got into, um, into, into some nonprofit work. I thought, you know, it's time to give back. I was about 40, 45 years old and, I did that for a while and then, um, and then eventually just sort of rounded the curve and came back into sales about uh, 15 years ago, 14, 15 years ago as a consultant. Um, and, you know, that's what consultants do. You know, they, they go out and make a lot of mistakes. They learn a profession and then they try to help other people avoid the mistakes that they made as sales professionals or whatever the consultancy is. So Roy and I met uh, 34 years ago and, um, and really the great value there uh, and why we why we're still friends and colleagues and actually business partners today is because Roy had a a gift and a knowledge around something that really broke loose my sales career and that's around the subject of attitude and how do you manage your attitude to perform at very high levels in sales or business ownership it's one of the most difficult things is to manage your attitude. And it's a very core part of what we believe in and what we do as, a, as an organization is help people understand how their mind gets in the way of very well-intentioned, uh, you know, uh, things that they're trying to go for. Their mind gets in the way and really interferes with their ability to perform at very high levels and to think clearly and to make good decisions. And in sales, there's no better profession to even think about uh, the mind than sales because you know you can go up and down like the tide because of your results that you get but learning how to manage it and steady it is what will help you become a really solid sales professional so let me stop there and uh and and just turn it over to roy let him tell you his story yeah you bet um roy whitten um i've got 10 years on scott so uh you know we're We've known each other for a long time. We first met in 86, 87. So uh, we've been friends, colleagues, consulted each other's businesses. Um, 
I actually, my very first job was in door-to-door -door selling for the old Fuller Brush Company. And I was in San Jose, California at the time doing, uh, going to college. And I did that for a year, but unlike Scott, I was not trained well. I was trained how to talk people into stuff and um, didn't have a lot of interest in doing that. And I became um, taken up, entranced by, just fascinated by the human potential movement. I was 20 years old during the summer of love in the and in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I became fascinated by the question as to how do we fulfill our potential? How do we actually change? How do we overcome um, habitual behavior that doesn't serve us? How do we perform at our best? How do we be our best? And um, that has been my lifetime interest and it's taken me into the Episcopal parish ministry. I was a parish priest. I went to graduate school and seminary in Virginia, came back and worked for 10 years as a parish priest. Then um, when I became less enchanted with that, I, I stopped that and started a human, with another business partner, a human development program that went international. And we would train large groups of people basically on how to stop lying to yourself, how to manage your mind, manage your attitude, perform at your best, be at your best, and, uh, and essentially just quit calming yourself about who you are and, and, and really get in touch with what you deeply want, what aligns with your values, and to live like that. And that's the program Scott took in 86. And I've never seen anybody do what Scott did, which was leave the training go back and apply this to his business in a way that the business was able to take off. And, um, and so I did that for 20 years, retired from that, went and got my doctorate in the same field, transformative learning and change, wound up as a consultant for business. Scott and I were reunited by another consultancy, given the project of developing a large high street banks in UK, the UK, a large high street bank sales academy. And when that um, job came to an end, we looked at each other and said, let's go into business, come out of retirement and just work with exactly who we want to work with doing exactly what we want to do. And that's when we started Whitman and Roy partnership in 2009. And for 11 years, then you guys have been uh, perking right along. Sometimes when people say, let's go into business, uh, they, within months, realized that was not the right thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you guys, uh, there's so many questions, but how did you guys manage to mesh your philosophies, your approaches to business, and your approaches to life without killing each other? That's a great, and it's such a great, great question you're asking, Doug, because, you know, when we were building the sales academy for the, uh, for the bank, um, we were uh, working together, in fact, right in this room here in London, uh, and, uh, and I remember, I mean, just standing literally, I'm five, five or six feet away from, <laughs> from where we had the conversation, Roy, about race. You remember when we talked about, I do. The, I the, do. there's a formula that I developed many years ago uh, for my sales organization called RACE. And, and it's a great set of diagnostic lenses to help you understand what drives performance and in, in, in particular in sales performance. And so what, what it stands for is R equals A plus C plus E. So it's a very simple formula. But what it means is, is that results 
in sales in this case, but it can be any kind of result, come from three factors. One is attitude or the mindset of the individual plus competence plus execution. So execution meaning the doing the right things at the right time with the right people, right? And, uh, and then of course, competence meaning your skills. And um, so when I went and took this seminar from Roy back in 1986, uh, from Roy's organization, that attitude piece just really dropped in place. And all of a sudden, I began integrating all of attitude into everything that I ever did around sales, around prospecting and approaching and closing and answering objections and, you know, motivating yourself, goal setting, all of those things that we all know and do. And, um, and you know, it, it really transformed our capability, my capability personally, our capability as a team, our capability as a company. So that integration began 34 years ago. Okay. And so then if you bring the clock forward, Roy and I were working on the academy and then, you know, we very easily brought our skill sets together. And then when we decided to go into business with one another, we sat up at, at Roy's flat up in Crystal Palace, which is about a 15 minute walk from here up the hill. And we sat there for literally nine months across from each other, building our, our, just our whole philosophy of sales and how to sell with excellence and how to do it in a way that you'd be really proud of, you know, which included all of these pieces of attitude and competence and execution and into a holistic formula that now has evolved into what we call decision intelligence selling. I can, I can add something. Um, I would like to add something. I, I do remember sitting right where you're sitting, Scott, and, uh, having that, there was this amazing moment when Scott says, well, I've got this little formula and he throws it up on the board or equals A plus C plus E. And, you know, as, you know, as an academically trained guy, I looked at that and said, this is gold. This is brilliant. And he goes, oh, you really think so? And it's become the focus, the core of everything that we do. So I remember that moment in the room. And here's the thing I would add, and what I'll do for the benefit of um, those who see this on YouTube is I will choose a background with, uh, there it is, with the book and the book title. Um, and I'll leave this up for just a moment and I'll go back to where the, you know, I don't bleed into the background quite so much. Um, what we, during that, during those months that we were meeting, uh, in, usually in my flat in London, um, we were not just putting together our selling philosophy, our practice, but we were seeking work, taking jobs, and we had did several contracts that we landed that went very well. And then what happened was that we lost two very big deals that we really, really wanted. These were the ones that were just going to just break us into business in a big way. And we lost them. And, you know, what happened was in both cases that the division heads we were talking to of these large companies and the procurement people were completely convinced that we had what they needed we knew we had what they needed. And then we went for the final sit down with the CEO and the CFO. And um, they said no. And, you know, we wound up at those final meetings. I mean, it was clear to us that 
the CEO and the CFO did not really understand the solution we were offering. Mm -hmm. And further than that, they didn't really understand the problems that they actually had in their sales force. The, the root problems, the underlying causes, all of which we'd talked about with the people we'd spoken with earlier, but they didn't really understand it. They just looked at the money and said, well, that's bigger than our budget. We're not going to do it. And we wound up in that both of those meetings, pitching them, trying to talk them into it. And we left those meetings and they occurred fairly close together in the calendar. Mm -hmm. We just stopped selling and said, we're not going to do this. This whole pitching, persuading thing, it's not us. We don't like it. It doesn't sit well. Reminded me of Fuller Brush and how I used to sell. And it wasn't the way Scott was trained fully in the, in the ethics of that. And it was like, we don't, we don't want to do this anymore. And so we did. We just stopped selling and did an evaluation of where it had gone wrong for us. And what we realized was that instead of focusing on trying to persuade that's those CEOs and CFOs to buy what we were selling, that what we needed to do was it was clear to us they didn't possess what we now call DQ, decision intelligence, IQ, EQ, emotional intelligence, DQ, decision intelligence. They didn't actually possess the information they needed to make a really good decision. They didn't understand the problems they had, and they certainly didn't understand the solution we had to those problems. And so we developed a selling strategy that was completely focused not on trying to persuade people to buy something, but focused on increasing their ability to make the best possible decision for their business, to increase their DQ. And that's how we came up with decision intelligence selling. And it has made all the difference. I, I can't begin to tell you how many times I've heard uh, salespeople on my own staff in years past or outside of my businesses say, I had these guys convinced, 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 and then somebody the next level up cut off my head. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you, how do these salespeople even realize there is yet another level to educate as to problems and solutions? Uh, that's a great point. I mean, what you're, what you're asking is really about sales strategy, you know, and, and how do you, you know, how do you go about deciding who to present a solution to once you've diagnosed the problems effectively? And it, essentially, you know, what we do is we work with organizations to, to really, help get in and understand and for them to understand the client to understand the problems they have at a much deeper level than they they do when we first meet them okay that's one of the things we learned is that clients just don't diagnose themselves very well they know they've got a problem with this or that you know they know they've got a problem in, in our in our case with the sales performance of their organization um, but they don't necessarily know exactly the extent of it they don't know why it's happening and so therefore what we do is we're committed to helping them figure that out for themselves, for them to uncover what those problems are. And so in the process of doing that, uh, Doug, what we do is we begin understanding, is this the person who's the decision maker or are there other people who are involved in this? And if there are other people at higher levels, then how do we strategically think about how to get them involved, particularly at the early stages when we're diagnosing those problems? Okay. So sometimes we might enter in at an L&D, a learning and development level or HR level, 
but we know that those people aren't the ones who have the problem. It's their clients that have the problem. So how do we get introduced to those people who have the problem? And so, so some of this is just becoming intelligent yourself as a salesperson, understanding, you know, how are decisions made in this organization? Who, you know, what's the pecking order? Because most organizations, you don't have one single person making a decision anymore, unless it's a smaller organization. It's usually some sort of group of people that come to some decision, you know, or sometimes, you know, an organization will dumb it down and just push it out to a procurement department, you know, which is, we, we think is an awful way to, to, to sell, but that's a, or to buy, but that's another story for another day. But, uh, but bottom line is, is that you've got to figure out, you know, how are decisions made in this organization? Who's going to be making it? Who's going to be involved in the decision? And then very importantly, how do we involve them in that diagnostic phase where we can really take a look at what is the problem that we're trying to solve, pick it apart, really get it very, very granular, and then take a very, very important second step. And that step is to, is to estimate or calculate the cost of that problem or that set of problems if they never get solved. So in other words, we've got this set of problems, you know, and, and how are we going to determine if it's a priority to solve it? Well, we're going to see how much it's costing us as a company. And once we see that figure, you know, $100,000 a month, a million dollars a month, you know, 5 million a year, whatever it might be, then all of a sudden, you know, the question is, is this problem serious enough for our company to go about solving it? And that's the first, first half of the selling process. And if the answer to that is yes, then you've taken them on a journey to deliver, you know, deliver them to a point where you have the right involvement with the right people before you begin even discussing a solution, you say, and then, and then you get that right traction. And so therefore, you know, or, or for that matter, there isn't a problem that's big enough. And they say, no, it's not big enough to solve. It's not a priority for us. And we go, thank you very much. And we fail fast with it, which is a good thing. And then we get, we get out of there. You know, we don't waste time. This is hardly selling of brushes door to door, is it? Where you have a quotient, uh, you have to you have to hit that quota no matter what, or you'll find brushes where you don't want them. <laughs> well, I, let me add to that because um, this problem of sales targets uh, there's a whole discussion to be had on how they get set, usually by the finance people. Uh, which bears little relationship to what's actually happening in the field. Um, there's a whole issue about that. But for successful selling, the moment you let targets drive you, let the outputs drive you, you fall into pitching, persuading, and pressure. Mm -hmm. And instead, what we did for ourselves and what we help our clients do is outline the steps that your clients have to take, the steps, the stages they have to go through in order to develop their DQ. That is to have enough decision intelligence so they will make the best possible decision and fight for the opportunity to have it. The Scots mentioned two, the first two of those steps are understand the problems you're trying to solve, and what it's costing you to leave them unsolved. The third step is fully understand the solution that's being offered and whether it'll really solve the problems. And then the fourth step is estimate the, the financial value of this solution for your company. You get 
a client who's got all of that information, they will make the best decision and they will spend the money that needs to be spent in order to solve those problems, stop paying the cost and realize the value. Now, to answer your question earlier, which is, how do you deal with the fact that you got multiple layers of decision making and when you get to the decision maker who's not been part of the conversation, what do you do? Well, we learned in actual real time about that when we had a deal a year after we came to selling like this with a large telecoms company in the UK, very large. And we were all set to sign the deal and the managing director, uh, we're talking to the guy who was the head, of the head of the division and his boss, when this guy was ready to sign the deal, his boss um, all of a sudden was fired <laughs> and they brought in a new guy. And I remember we were at Costa Coffee, Scott, yeah, right around yeah. the corner from where my flat was in Crystal Palace. <laughs> Scott comes in, we've just both gotten the news on text and we're looking at each other. And because we knew the stages that we had to take clients through for them to have enough DQ, A, we didn't panic, and B, we realized that we were now back at stage one with this new guy. And so we were willing to sit down with him and not talk about the proposal that was already on the table. That's down to like stage nine or 10, but to go way back to the beginning and talk about the problems to solve. What did he see as a new person, etc. And in one conversation, we were able to review all of the thinking that had gone into that with his, his uh, uh, predecessor. And in one conversation, because we'd taken him through those stages, he wound up saying, I don't understand it all, but I understand enough to know this is a good investment. And he signed off on it and we had our largest contract. Now, here's a really basic question for either or both of you guys. And that is the, one of the things I kept hearing and experienced myself is where do you find good quote unquote salespeople? And uh -huh. then how do you keep the good ones? The mm. bad ones never seem to leave. <laughs> mm. <laughs> well, you know, you know, I mean, as, as someone who's hired about 1500 salespeople in my life uh, and, and not just hired them, but actually was their sales manager. So I got a chance to see just how good those decisions were that I made. <laughs> so, you know, um, you know, the answer is, um, and, and this may sound a bit controversial is that I, I really believe that I don't want to have somebody coming to me with a lot of sales experience because most sales experience is pretty bad. Most of it's pretty poorly trained. And if I really want people to perform, I want to teach them the way that I want them to, to sell. Okay. Now that's, you know, that's not an absolute, obviously, Doug. I mean, you know, in certain companies like, you know, for example, a technology company might do very well to have an experienced person in technology that understands the technical aspects of it and sort of how you sell in a complex environment. That's very helpful. But what I really want to hire is for attitude. Then I want to hire a person who is, is willing to learn and is willing to, uh, to work with me in such a way as that we work within a framework or a system that everybody on the team works in. Now, everybody is going to look a bit different when they sell, but we're all working 
you know, within a system that can be measured, it can be trained, it can be developed. You can, you know, you can have more predictability in the results that you're going to get out of that and not have what we call a lone wolf, someone who just goes out and sells out of pure talent and, you know, whatever they do to be an incredibly great salespeople uh, because you can't necessarily, you know, build a, a great team, you know, uh, or, or a group of people who know how to sell from a, from a systemic stand, a standpoint. So um, bottom line is, is that, is that um, you, 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 you find people who want to be excellent at what they do, who really want to be great at what they do. And if they'll do that, then, uh, then you've got a great person and then you manage them in such a way that you, you know, and I'll let Roy talk about this a little bit, but you manage them in a way that they want to stay. They want to stay because how hey, you treat them, <laughs> you know, and not mistreat them, right? Over the years. Yeah, I, I, let me, let me, um, let me build on what Scott just said. The problem with trying to hire the right salespeople is that almost every one of them will come in with the belief that selling is about persuading the buyer to buy. That is in the air we breathe. And we've had projects in 46 countries now, Scott? 40, yeah, 45, 46, yeah. 45, 46. And it's nearly universal. Experienced salespeople, new salespeople, everybody thinks selling is some kind of dark art about talking people into buying stuff. And therefore, you hire experienced salespeople, you get people that are really good at pitching, persuading, and putting the pressure on to close. And as sales managers, we're suggesting you don't want people doing that. And if they're pretty good at it, then they become lone wolves and they're selling enough that you can't get rid of them, even though they're screwing up the teamwork and the system and everything else. You've seen that, I'm sure, Doug. Well, in small um, businesses, I mean, small and medium-sized businesses that have relatively small sales forces, you know, a sales force selling that way can really screw up your brand pretty quickly, yeah. you know, and, and all of a sudden you get a reputation in the market. So we, you know, we think that, that uh, selling is, you know, is something that, um, it has both an art and a science to it, but it needs, it needs to be thoughtful about how your, you know, how your salespeople go about engaging clients, working with clients, you know, how they actually are treating clients. Because, I mean, the bottom line is you want clients to come back and be repeat customers. You want customers to go out and, and, and refer other customers to you. And the way you're going to do that is by making sure that when you sell whatever you sell, it's well-placed, is something that really does fit the needs that they have because you've done a great job in defining those needs. You've taken the time to do that. You've taken the time to make sure there's a business case for it to have, you know, the, the financial cost of not changing, you know, so that people make a solid decision. Since they've diagnosed the problem so well, they get a great solution that actually matches up to the different kinds of problems that are presented. And, you know, you calculate what the value of, the, of, of that uh, solution is. And then you deliver that. And then all of a sudden you have a client who's really happy with you and they go, well, what else you got, you know, or let's have another chat about what else we got problems with here in XYZ company, or you go to them and say, are you happy with, you know, what we brought you? Yes. Great. We'd love to find other clients just like you, you know, who, who will be happy as well with the kind of service we can provide. Who would you recommend that I speak to? You say, and then and all the of a sudden you're really starting to sell in 
you're starting to sell in the ether now, you know, with repeat business and referral business. And the way you do that is by teaching your salespeople. That's why you don't necessarily want to hire people that come in with a pitching, persuading attitude. You want to hire people that are great learners and you want a system that focuses all selling activity and all selling conversations on the purpose, not of convincing your client to buy, but on increasing their DQ. Mm -hmm. If you do that, even if they don't buy from you, the experience of being treated like that is so compelling, they'll be back. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the way to answer what Scott had handed over to me for the way you manage this is by applying his formula of R equals A plus C plus E. That the key is great sales management, which is a dedication to the development of three things in your people, their ability to manage their attitude, to know when their attitude is slipping and to know how to raise it. And there's a simple technology for that. You got to practice it, but you can, you can become very masterful at it. Secondly, their competence, how to engage their clients in conversation that focuses on their DQ and its development, not on trying to persuade them into some sort of activity. And then thirdly, you have an execution in place, a structure of these are the steps through which we're going to take our clients and which they must go through if they're gonna have high DQ. And if they're not willing to go through them, they qualify out. So mm -hmm. we quit spending our time on them and go talk to people that do want mm -hmm. to be the sort of clients that we wanna have. And the one, there's a huge benefit is not only do you get more sales and get them faster and they become larger, you get clients who are actually committed to the solution you've sold them. Yeah. Instead of having internal struggles later on, that serving those clients becomes just a pain in the rear end. Yeah. And now, then, where, then, where can our listeners and viewers get more information about your company? There must be a website you guys have sure. cobbled together someplace. Yeah, yeah. It's a. Uh, it's called. <laughs> it's called uh, Whitten and Roy. Or I'm sorry. It's www.wrpartnership. Dot com and that's our website wrpartnership.com and on the website they can find information about what we do how we do it you know we we love to share this information very freely and uh, that's where they can also find information about the book i mean when we when we wrote decision intelligence selling which is available on amazon uh, both in Kindle format as well as uh, paperback and hardback will soon be available as soon as COVID uh, uh, problems are, uh, you know, get freed up and so they can start printing again, uh, is that uh, our commitment to, to writing this book was to write down what we do with clients to help them create that transformation. And so our intention is that someone can read this, understand it, get inside of the framework, and then have the what to do's to actually install this either for their own selling uh, capability, or if they have a team of people that they can actually lead them through a process of actually installing decision intelligence selling. And uh, so it's, you know, it's not one of these things where you know, we don't tell much, we tell a lot in the book and the purposes so people can go out and actually do it, <laughs> you know, once they've read it. So, uh, so it's uh, available now on, on amazon.com. So again, wrpartnership.com 
we'll provide some information and also a direct link to where you can read for free the first two chapters of the book. You've been listening to the Biz News Podcast. We welcome your input. Send your email to editor at biznews.com. That's B-I-Z-G-N-U-S dot com. Thanks for listening.